Talk of the Thrones. Thrones. The Ringer's instant reaction show for all things Ice and Fire is back. Now as a pod. To cover the new Game of Thrones spinoff, House of the Dragon. Every Sunday night, the Ringerverse, Chris Ryan, that's me. Joanna Robinson. And I, Mallory Rubin, will be breaking down the latest episode. Sharing our thoughts on all the schemes and plots. Uh, schemes and plots are the same thing. Dragons. And incest. Hey, it's a Game of Thrones show. So boot up your favorite podcast player and head to the Dragon Pit. Because fire and pods will rain. This episode is brought to you by Pure Leaf Iced Tea. Great iced tea takes you somewhere else like new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea that we have here at the Spotify Studios and drink quite a bit where unexpectedly blackberry flavor transports you to a very delicious place. So refreshing you may never want to leave. You will eventually have to though, but take your time. Try new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. Visit Amazon.com slash Pure Leaf and enter 20 Pure Leaf. That's 20 Pure Leaf for 20% off your purchase of new Pure Leaf Blackberry Iced Tea. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. I'm with Chris Yang. We just got back from New York. We had a whirlwind. Whirlwind. Really fun dinner at Claude. Pronounced it right. I think so. It was delicious. Josh Pinsky, Chase Sinzer, and the whole team. A lot of Momo alum. Couldn't be prouder of them. It's on 90 East 10th Street. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. It is very, very good. Um, so yeah, I'm excited. <laughs> excited for them. And then not because we were hungry, but afterward we took a quick field trip to the pizza shop so you could prove your point about how small the pizza, your personal pizza was at the airport. <laughs> I did. Anyway, <laughs> we took a little side trip. I won't say which one, but it's in the there's five pizzerias in a in a five block radius if you stop from First Avenue. I don't know the pizzerias past First Avenue, but mm-hmm. I know all the pizzerias on a five-block radius going from 10th Street, 1st Avenue, radiating. We went to the one of the worst of the five, but still, very good. Yeah. You pointed out specifically what you felt the size of the pizza at the airport was from the last episode. And this one, what makes it a little bit more compelling, this pizzeria, are the slices are maybe 20 to 30% bigger than a normal slice. Mm-hmm. They're, they're quite massive. Right. Right. And much cheaper than this personal one. You're and two get. slices of cheese were $6. <laughs> it's true. And I don't know if you want to go there right now, but you also, I noticed you stopped and you took a little picture of those paninis mm. and were muttering about who yeah. eats these things. Again, like I, I sometimes I feel this podcast is only for people that live on the coasts and nothing in between. Well, you know, that's such as life. Right. <laughs> um, but if you've lived in New York City, if you've been to a bodega that does bacon, egg, and cheese on a Kaiser roll, that kind of setup. Because there's also different classes of bodega. Before we get there's different classes of bodega. On the top, top tier, you have bodegas that are full-fledged supermarket slash convenience stores. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We sort of talked about it, the, the marveling at their ability to decide what is going to be a product that they sell. And they have everything from toenail clippers to like hangnail clippers to file like from that they've like literally everything every kind of body deodorant every kind of european candy <laughs> the exact battery you yeah. need they also have a grill and if they have a deli case full of food right like that's what we're talking about not all of our bodega has uh the ability to cook and uh, i'm talking about the standard bodega that can just do bacon egg and cheese that also has pre-made sandwiches mm-hmm. i i could literally talk for two hours about the differences in bodegas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Off the top of my head, I'm going to guess there's probably 18 variations of New York City bodegas. 18, uh-huh. right? From well, well, we'll save this. But <laughs> the one thing I've always marveled at, and I can tell you two times I've ever had it in my life, in my almost 20 years of living in New York City, is the panini. Mm-hmm. So I had to show Chris. Even here, they have a panini. 
Yeah, it, it it does boggle the mind. Like who is who is ordering? Who's coming to the pizza place for the for the but panini? It's not really even a panini. It's almost like it's a pita bread sandwiched. <laughs> yeah, two pitas sandwiching bread. I mean meat. Here's the here, here's what's confusing to me. Do you, I don't really understand this at all because the bodega culture is totally foreign to me. But like those sandwiches already have the panini marks on them. Have they already been grilled? I think it's a little bit like the McRib where it's been oh, it's like painted. On. Yeah, painted on. <laughs> Uh, um, well, people eat them. Clearly, they eat them. I guess so. They're I've them. had them twice. One was in the peak of the pandemic uh, when I was in New York City for uh-huh. like a uh, just getting stuff. And uh, another one when I was like super young and I had like a turkey panini. Uh-huh. But that's literally it. Two times. So but they even no, like, had that. It's not like a hidden culinary treasure. No. But okay. I, I just wanted to show Chris, look. <laughs> The great mystery of is who has who is the individual that eats these every day. Right. Even bagel shops have them too. So the fact that you could see them on maybe every city block means that it's one of the most widely consumed sandwiches in New York City. And I don't know anything. I don't know who's a who's an advocate for this. This is this is the most interesting point. I think Dave is like somebody's eating them. We just haven't met them yet. But somebody's definitely eating these. Lots of people, presumably, because they're everywhere. That's like a, that's always the weird Again, mystery. This is much like my college graduation, where I thought that I knew everybody, but I didn't know anybody once I got on stage, and I was like, "Oh my god!" So I, I this one could be one of those moments where I think that majority of the people don't buy this sandwich, where in reality, I'm the one that's wrong. I think that's I think that's probably what's happening. It's like if okay for people who don't have bodegas, it's like when you go to any grocery store and you look in like the prepared food thing. And there's just like a massive pile of grilled chicken breasts. And you're like, they're selling all of these today? Yeah, well, Somebody's buying all of these. More specifically, it might be like, oh, you go to a restaurant and you see uh, kidney and onions. <laughs> Who's going to order that? And you think nobody's going to order that. And then you realize that everybody orders it. That's how I feel about this kind of panini. And I love paninis. Don't get me wrong. This, this exact thing happened to me I ordered many, many, many years ago. I think I had ordered like liver and onions at a chain restaurant. And as I, when I walked away and the server started laughing and said to my friends, they're like, what are you laughing at? And he was like, Oh, just only Asian people and old people buy that. <laughs> so such a Chris Yang move. <laughs> so bad. Such a order. Anyway, such a Chris Yang order. <laughs> Back to the subject. Dion waiters. <laughs> it got me thinking about trends. We were talking about the last podcast as well, a little bit where things are going. And I will say that I get, I just, I've had a number of conversations. When I say number, I would say close to like a dozen over the past six, seven months, where I feel like a lot of chefs my age, I would say people that have been in the business minimum 15 years are now asking themselves like, what are, what's going on? Is this, I think it's natural for everyone to question what they want to do. And I, I want those that are listening that are in the industry asking themselves, what what does this all mean? Is this what I want to be doing? I'm going to just suggest it's a totally natural thing. Mm-hmm. The interesting thing is for people that are cooking, that have decided to cook in the, I wouldn't say in the 90s, but started cooking professionally from like 95 on, mm-hmm. we never saw what the older generation, what their lives were going to be like. We never, we never saw it. We mm. began to see a little bit where People would be taking jobs just to sort of pay the bills, or you'd hear about a chef getting a knee replacement or a hip replacement. You began to see broken bodies happen a little bit with their joints failing, but it was just a whole generation where we didn't. Like the people that we work for are still around opening restaurants, but I feel like food culture is very similar to the other things that are happening culture, where the mid market, including mom and pop and many individual independent restaurants, are getting squeezed out. Hmm. High-end restaurants are doing really well right now. Mm-hmm. I think across the board, mm-hmm. in my opinion. But super high-end, I would put destination dining, where it's two, three mission star, you're going somewhere else, or any kind of sushi high-end counter experience. And then I think the notch below that are the experiential places, the Balthazars, the Carbones, where you're getting really good food and an experience in that Balthazar setting. Then I feel like everything in between is in the free fall right now. No one, it's in a discovery process right now as everyone's trying to figure out what's going on because I think food delivery has changed a lot of people's perceptions of 
affordable eating. So let's just say a price point that's under 40 bucks mm-hmm. per person or 35, that's been commoditized by a lot of stuff that you can get delivered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So now you see a lot of people trying to figure out what that mid-market is. Right, there's like overlap with the delivery, whatever market at that level as well, to some extent, right? So they're like proving their, they have to prove their worth to the consumer in this kind of ridiculous way. Well, people don't want to leave the area right. and they're just, I think we're going to need some time to sort out what COVID has done to our patterns. Mm-hmm. Clearly one of the things that's happened and we'll see how long it lasts. People are eating earlier mm-hmm. and going to bed earlier. People are also dining out. Thursday night is Friday, mm-hmm. <laughs> Right. And lunches across the board are just sort of slower with the exception of maybe one or two. And I'm, I'm talking about New York, LA, San Fran, people that I talk to because people aren't going to the office. But if they are, you know, it, it, I think there's an illusion right now where people, people are busy, but it's not as busy as it used to be mm-hmm. and expenses are higher. So that's one of the things that I'm, I'm talking about. Everyone's trying to reevaluate. A lot of restaurants are opening. And I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily worried because I think we're in a process of discovery. I think this is all new. And I don't know what stays and what goes in mm-hmm. this new world that we're sort of living in. Um, but I will say that I didn't anticipate, nor did I expect high-end places to be doing as well as they are. Hmm. And I understand people want to like go out and they want to have like a big celebratory yeah. Fancy experience. In some way, my fear, I guess if there's a fear, we're going to go back to the mid nineties and that's not a fear. I'm actually sort of predicting that it's a little bit more cyclical like this. Everything is cyclical. It just may not come back in your lifetime. Right. right. Well, explain the mid nineties. What do you, what do you mean when you say the mid nineties? Well, with food, with the exception of San Francisco, I, I'm just focusing on New York city. You had five or six restaurants that people went to hmm. and that was, that was it. Mm-hmm. You had... The, the French spots, Lutece, uh, La Grenouille, um, La Caravelle, the, all the Frenchy name ones. You had Le Bernardin before Repair was even running it. You had, you know, Gilbert and Maggie Lacoste still mm-hmm. there but when Gilbert was alive. Danielle was at the original Danielle, which was the Surrey Hotel. And you had David Boulay and you had Lespinas. Gramercy Tavern hadn't opened yet. Union Square was still like in its infancy of, you know, so that wasn't even like a thing. So I would say, you know, I'm missing, I'm sure, a couple, but in terms of what was interesting to people, that was about it. It was less than 10 restaurants, I would say. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and there was nothing really other than, say, Chinatown, the 32nd Street, Koreatown, Brooklyn. I mean, the only restaurant I know that people were talking about were Williams um, River Cafe, Aldi Law mm-hmm. in Brooklyn, and Luger's. That was like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> Nobody was talking about anything else, to my knowledge. Nobody talked about any place in Queens other than, say, Cape Town, or if you go to um, eat Indian food in Flushing. There was no information to sort of let people know. So the New York Times, New York Magazine, uh, Time Out was very big Mm. um, because they had their list and they would break down these guides. Zagat was huge. So those are the gatekeepers as well. So it was really hard for new things to get out there because how did you get the word? Everything was word of mouth and you had to sort of play the game, but food was sort of stuck in that. And then it got flattened out a little bit when Danny Meyer started expanding and Tom did his thing. And then you had more American people. And then you had the second generation of chefs from Charlie Palmer, Terrence Brennan. You know, that's when McNally started to expand as well. And it started to grow, but along with that growth. So it went from like super high end. And then if the, Upper middle to middle started to fill in. Mm-hmm. And then you the low end, the cheaper, which was quote unquote the ethnic eats, was the the floor. But what never really filled in was anything above the cheap eats to the middle. Mm-hmm. That was completely gone. It actually didn't exist. It was just cheap eats, bodegas, and then things like Union Square. Right. For those that weren't alive or disagree or whatever, basically all I'm trying to say is. There were not that many options, and people were going to the the chosen standbys. John George opened up, but that changed a lot of things. Peasant opened up. Uh, Forgione just took it over, but Frankie DiCarlo had an amazing restaurant. So you would have these things, and slowly over the years, it started to sort of flatten out. The middle started to flatten out and get more diversified. I think sort of after Momofuku, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to open a Momofuku was to get the more diversity in the low to middle. Right. Now there's been an over-index of low to middle. 
I was going to say, I mean, like the basically the the area that you're describing is the zone that Momofuku first, what, you know, you, you guys were the first ones in there, basically. And that became, I think, the early two th- or mid-2000s till mid-2010s. Like, that was where you opened a restaurant. Mm-hmm. But what is going to happen in some time frame is that things are going to get over-indexed to the super gl- glamorous and luxe. I see. Because now that's where the money's at. There's so much money in corporate dining if that even comes back. But like people have more money right now, it seems. And people want an experience. They just want an, a beautiful dining experience or something that's close to that or something that feels good. So I feel like we're going back to some version where it's exclusive. A lot of exclusive shit's about to happen. A lot of clubs are about to happen. A lot of fucking clubs. We talked about it even pre-pandemic, but I think this expedited it. And this is basically the clubbing club thing is sort of where Japan is at right now. But I think they're going to have to reevaluate because of the lack of tourism. And you're talking about you're not talking about literally like bottle service clubs. You're talking about like private dining, private clubs, dining clubs, like yeah, in, yeah, yeah. in Asia, Shanghai, Tokyo, stuff like that. Um, so I'm not sure. My that's my guess is that things are going to go more luxurious, more higher end, more bespoke. Which is, again, like just the way it is. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It's just that's where it's going. And I think price points are just going to get more expensive. So a lot of the things that you see that are on the lo- like affordable to middle range are just going to get more and more expensive. So you're going to just see this gradual shift of the restaurants that are serving whatever they're serving right now. And it's going to get in terms of like with a f- in- not just inflation. And I'm not trying to be economist here. Just me modeling things out in my head. That is eventually going to rise. So it's like Mm -hmm. the middle, today's middle now is going to be seen as upper middle, Mm -hmm. right? And in in some way, like the best best comp I have is say, if you ask somebody if they were a Bush Republican 15 years ago, Mm -hmm. today they would be considered almost an extremely liberal Democrat. (laughs) Right, exactly. They're a moderate Democrat. They're a moderate Democrat. Right. So like I'm talking about the $75 price point. Right. But like by your, I mean, by like the cyclical nature of all this, like what, eight to 10 years, people are going to be like, what's up with that lower middle again? Yeah. it's <laughs> basically what you're saying. Well, I don't know if it will. That's what, that's where I don't know. Yeah. It may not repeat itself. It may be in a different form or fashion, but I basically, in terms of giving you guys just some random name, I think the price point is going to get more expensive for the middle and not that they're going to serve the same stuff. I just think things are going to get more elevated. Mm-hmm. Economy withstanding, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of people are looking clearly at this recession. So, so when you say you're having these conversations with other chefs, are they mostly being? Are these questions being driven? There's two kinds of questions, right? It's one like, "Am I cooking the food I want to be cooking? Am I being creatively satisfied?" The other one is, "Is this business model make any sense?" Which question are well, you I hearing think all, more often? All of the above. I'm trying to find some kind of comparison without talking about the chefs that <laughs> I've been talking to <laughs> mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. outing them because these are, you know, relatively private. So that's why I'm trying to generalize it and give you guys some kind of comparison. So I was explaining to one of my friends that for a younger generation, you're trying to tell them that they need to like Led Zeppelin. (laughs) Uh And you're making music like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. I'm doing everything. I'm not using digital. I'm doing, you know, everything's analog and everything's hard and everything's this. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. the reason you're doing it is because it's integrity. And that's why you're making it the hard way. And you're doing that because that's why you think that younger cooks are there because they want to learn. They want to do this in some degree. Yes. In other degree, I uh, argue that, are you doing it for yourself? Mm Right, and you're fooling yourself that you're doing this for other people. Mm-hmm. You're doing this because this is how you think is what you think is important. Mm-hmm. When reality is, is it important anymore to everybody? Right. When they're probably not even they don't own a vinyl player, they don't own a CD player, they probably don't even own like a music account. You know, they probably written, I don't even know how young people listen to music, and they sure as hell probably don't give a shit about Led Zeppelin or Rolling Stones or the Beatles. I don't know what they're listening to. I have no idea. Right. And that's the reality. And not to say that they won't discover it. Are they going to care about it as much as you? And it's not their fault if they don't give a shit about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's all it is. It's nobody's fault. Just things are changing. For example, you know, I feel like it's a little bit like if you were poison the band Mm -hmm. in like 1989, 1990, they're huge. Right leotards, makeup, 
<laughs> scarves. I got pink eyeliner everywhere. Cece Deville jumping, doing the splits. You got Brett Michaels with his bandana. You know, <laughs> fun music, huge. And all of those bands that were in that genre, mm-hmm. were they the only music that mattered? No, but they're the most culturally relevant music that mattered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then I was 13 years old when, or 14 when Nirvana happened. Mm-hmm. And then that died. Right. And then you got Nickelback, right? Right. Right. But then you go through that cycle where I'm not saying that we're, the, the, there's a lot of chefs or a lot of the culinary world is that not at all. I don't think there's a way that there's an apple to apple type of thing, but I'm just throwing cultural references out there to sort of do a, a Doppler radar image of what the fuck might be happening to give us some insight. Maybe it's like when you think about grunge, you know what? Grunge created boy bands right. and Dave Matthews. The reaction. Yeah. But it's like, I think what you're saying when it comes to like, to, to, to make it, it's a little bit like when you were, if you were like a deeply into music in like the nineties or early aughts, you were like, you would have conversations. If you were into like indie rock, you'd be like, oh, Johnny Marr influenced Johnny Greenwood and his guitar styles like this. And this is like, you know, he was such a great technician on the guitar or whatever. Nobody's having that conversation. Well, now. this is what I know is I used to study everything and not just me. Many people I know used to study everything that Ferran Adria and Albert Adria did. Right. Now nobody gives a fuck. So it's exactly the same. It's like you used to be just like sell, you used to be like nerd out about this thing. And not to say that like, like it's I'm not like nobody, but like it used to be everybody I cooked with would give a shit about this. Right. Right. And so you're, yeah, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. You're like X restaurant says like you go in and say, oh, so you're just like buying these from the store or something. Right. And you know, restaurant will be like, no, we make these by hand. And you're like, wait, who are you doing that for? Why are you doing that? Right. It doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't matter or it doesn't, it matters, but it's like, it's not to the consumer, I guess it doesn't matter. And I guess I, it's just an interesting thing where a lot of people are asking themselves, what do I do? I'm not saying I don't want to do this, but I wish I had some alternatives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nobody's fault. Just culture has moved and culture is changing and it's not about adapt or die. It's like, that's just the way it is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you just have to, first thing I think is just sometimes just sort of accept it. But like, I think a lot of people are asking themselves, what do they do now? I wish I had an answer. I wonder that all the time myself. If you're not asking that, that I think is sort of strange, but everything that's happened with almost the past two and a half, almost three years now, it's a lot. And people's eating habits have changed. Culture has changed. Who knows what's going to happen? Another big thing, people aren't going to work every day. Mm -hmm. How long that lasts? Maybe it's forever. Maybe it's temporary. Nobody knows, but I think what we need to be discussing is how much our habits of how we live and who we are have changed fundamentally so that I think it's very difficult to forecast. It's okay to realize that, wait, who I was and what I cared about before may not match. Again, I wish I could give some magic bullet answer, but it's just the way it is right now. So I think there's a lot of introspection, a lot of existential what am I doing it for? Was I doing this just to win an award, mm-hmm. win a beard award? How, you know, it's a fight for all of these things. So, yeah, I mean, I remember like pre pandemic, the question you would always ask whether, you know, when you were talking to somebody who had come up with there on the same time, we were talking to Renee or whoever would be like, is food better today than it was 10 years ago? I'm super curious to know, like, what's going to, in 10 years, like, what your answer to that question will be. It'll be really, who knows? This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. I'm really trying to get a better understanding of what's happening in terms of trends. One of the things I've been looking at are just what's happening on plates. If you just look at the current trends in terms of plating, 
we're in the St. John's era now. When I say St. John's era, if you don't know what St. John's is, that's a good example. If I told you St. John's 10 years ago, I think everybody would know. When I say everybody, everyone in my world, mm-hmm. if I just ask, hey, what does Fergus Henderson like to drink? Everyone would go, for not. No rare. Right. But that's not a conversation. If I that, even know. say the style of St. John's, when I say the style of St. John's, what was beautiful about it was that it's just simply the food on the plate. And it's an, almost a, a style aesthetic that is minimal in and of itself. But again, even that kind of style is go- going all the way back to Russian and French style service, table side. Russian service, I believe, is just family style to begin with, right? Whatever it is, it's a style that that's how food, at least in the Western world, I can't say Kaiseki, people always say, oh, this is how the world did it. No, no, no. That's like, no. We're specifically talking about the Western food canon. Mm-hmm. Way more different. Way <laughs> Just a whole nother world. Yeah. yeah it, it's like saying in the like the 1920s, the best baseball player was this white guy. <laughs> right, 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 right. Wrong. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Somebody the other day said something that like blew my mind a little bit. It was like, yeah, the majority of people on this planet are lactose intolerant. And I was like, the majority of people are lactose intolerant. <laughs> what the hell? Like, I'm not the minority. Anyway. So like you get, went from haute cuisine, which is super heavy, super ornate. And that is like the Escoffier type of shit where it's heavy sauces, super luxurious ingredients for mm-hmm. the super rich. And then you had Russian and French style service. And then I think like in the 50s, that's when you had Nouveau Cuisine. And that led into uh, Bocuse and the Trois Brothers, which is why you can say that the Trois Brothers basically invented plating with their sorrel salmon. And Nouveau Cuisine really was a response to Haute Cuisine, which was using faster pickups, lighter ingredients, more affordable ingredients, more acidity, more light. It just was a the opposite, but not really the opposite of Haute Cuisine. And when you had Nouveau Cuisine, that's when plating really started to happen, at least again from the French Western canon. And and that broke out into four branches. You had like naturalism, which is best defined by, say, Michel Bras or Marc Verrat would be a good example. And then another branch was molecular, quote unquote molecular, let's just call it modern, which is Heston and and Ferran. And another one was um, minimalism, which was influencing by Japanese food culture. And then the last one was sort of a mix of, of minimalism and, and nouveau cuisine. That's what Robichon sort of really created with Freddy Giraudet. And that was presentation, but super simple, mm-hmm. making it look deceiving complex. And, and that sort of became like the mainstay of plating where it was a lot of dots. Modern plating turned into really abstractions of what food was. Naturalism was... We're just showing you the bounty of what happened. We're doing very little, right? In, in American, it would probably be what Chez Panisse was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that would be in that school. So you, you can fracture all the plating down. And that's how you can look at trends as well as like cross sections in a tree in terms of where food is going at. And then in the 80s, food starts to get really uh, big. Tall. Tall. <laughs> stacked up. Really, Alfred Portali, Gotham Bar and Grill popularized it. Charlie Trotter taking a lot of stuff that Robichon did, making things really minimal. Later, you have Keller coming in, and that gets in the degustation, which is the plates within the plates, and you're making things very, very bespoke. And in the 90s, it gets into geometric. You're putting everything in the ring molds and stuff. So you can, like, also probably in the late 80s, early 90s, you're seeing lots of confetti, lots of sauces fucking from the top, splattering a lot of the Jackson Pollock shit. And then... What most people saw were still what Robichon was doing, what still what the big masters were doing, the, the, the Alain Chappelle creating cappuccino. Like, I'm not trying to go through this whole food history here, but basically you're breaking it all down and you're seeing the kinds of things that start to get picked up from other chefs. And the reality, the mainstay that won it all was three, in my opinion. It was what Robichon was doing and how he was plating. Mm-hmm. And then you have the minimal naturalism type of thing. Minimal, natural, maybe sometimes they overlap the same school. What has died almost completely is modern plating. Yeah. It's very form over function, I think. Right. right? It's like, 
it's it's swoops and swirls and dots and it's like it's it's like gymnastics a lot of nike, lot of nike swooshes a lot of swooshes a lot of spoon drags all these crazy things right. you know, a lot of manipulate it's like very manipulative very few people have like changed plating but uh it has happened and the one thing that was riding through all of that was the minimalness of st john's mm-hmm. right it's like just here it is bone marrow on a plate Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Here's a here's a Welsh rarebit on a plate. Like, yeah, here's an Eccles cake with a chunk of cheddar on a plate. That's it. And now I feel like you're seeing more restaurants just serving things, and because of that, it's a little bit more Instagrammable, mm-hmm. right? I think there's also a, a cause to that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because it's easy to grok as your sleuths like, but it's also easier to it. see what it is, and you can yeah. make things that are much more visual. Um, Ryan Barlow's Spanish restaurant, where he's just doing the potato chips with jamón on top. It's a mm-hmm. very Instagrammable thing. That's that that is the plate, right? Right. It's the food becomes the plate itself. That is it in and of itself. So I'm looking at this and I'm like, oh, this is sort of where we're going. It's much more simple, super clean, and I think that's here to stay for a while. Mm-hmm. And, and when it's not, that's the next shift. Mm-hmm. So I'm looking at the plating sort of to give me some closer idea of where things might be going. And right now, there was a while everyone started plating modern. Yeah. And you can almost look at this from the scoop of ice cream in the evolution. Yeah. Explain that. And I'm talking really around late 90s on up. It turned into sco- literally scoops, mini scoops of ice cream. And if you think about it, that's how I grew up. I thought a fucking ice cream <laughs> was just a scoop. There's no other way to serve it except for a little dome. And then it turned into canals. Uh-huh. And then it turned into versions of canals, <laughs> Right. Canals with shit around it. Canals, it, you know, it became like... Canals in a cage. Canals, yeah. yeah. Like everything around the canal. Yeah. So yeah. it was like ice cream and then constructions around it. <laughs> I'm picturing then, so many. Yeah. And then it turned into a canal with a dent in it. Yes, the smash canal. The smash canal. <laughs> right? And then there are differences of dents in that canal. And then it turned into not using a... Um, ice cream scoop and I'm not going to canal it. I'm just going to do the smash of ice cream and Mm -hmm. smush it down. Mm -hmm. That merged with the dented canal and the smush into the half canal smush with shit drizzled in that dent. Right, right, right. The the Cold Stone Creamery. Yeah. Yeah, You know, shit, like a little well of whatever you put some... whatever liquid you want, like strawberry coolie and bo- bo- yes, blueberry coolie or some, <laughs> look at this fucking olive oil that I don't know how to pronounce. And I just came from this trip in that's Italy. It with, a little, with a few flakes of Malden yeah, yeah. on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that one. Here's my, <laughs> here's my cream flavored ice cream. <laughs> what? what? <laughs> and, and I think currently it went back, it's gone back to just the fucking scoop. Mm-hmm. Even though you're seeing some still, the, then indentation into the scoop is still present. Sure, sure, sure. But I haven't seen a canal of ice cream for a long, long time. I know. Yeah, you're right. That's good. But it's now in vogue just to do the scoop again. Mm-hmm. So if you just isolated just the scoop of how ice cream are served in restaurants, mm-hmm. that gives you like a much more like a microcosm case of how rapid things move. Mm-hmm. Does that make any sense at all? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes, that makes sense. Do you think, so you started though talking about like the before plating, before the advent of like Western plating, there was the French and Russian service. Are you predicting or you do you think like that table side stuff is coming back as well or no? Things are going to get much more formal. Mm-hmm. We're going to get, I think, sommeliers with penguin suits and taste fins all over. We started again. seeing a little bit of this pre-pandemic, but it's it's definitely carried on. The little, the rolling cart coming through. Uniforms are going to come back. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. another thing to look out for are, okay, um, if cooks start to wear uniforms again, mm-hmm. not dishwasher porter shirts, not t-shirts, but they start to wear chef coats again. Yeah. And then f- soon you're going to see some restaurant and they're bringing back all old school and everyone's wearing toques again and everyone's wearing Brigard jackets and all this shit. And everyone, you know, then these are the things that start to trend. It's like, we're making a statement. We're the antithesis of everything that's happening and this is what we're doing. And now I was like, oh, maybe I should do this. Mm-hmm. I, it, I'm not saying that will happen. These are the things that could potentially happen. Because right now, these are the trends that I'm looking at, that I'm seeing because I can have data and I have enough data in my life to like, I can't predict the future, but I'm looking at the stuff that's happening to give me some indication. If you look at the chef uniform over the past 25 years, it has changed fucking night and day. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So for me to better understand the future, I want to better understand 
not better understand. I want to have a fucking mastery of what the fuck has already happened to give me some sense right. of what human nature could do. Right. And but the uniforms changed. I have to. I I used to have to wear a fucking toque mm-hmm. in cooking school, and then I worked for John George. I have to wear a fucking toque. Well, I think that we've also reached the when it comes to like server uniform. We've I don't we've definitely reached a point where it's like I can't tell who works here. Like it's indistinguishable. That to me means we've reached the Some end of that. Some asshole really <laughs> fucked that up. I don't know who it was. <laughs> I wonder who might have screwed us on that one. Who, who, who could have screwed us? <laughs> what over a fucking that? dick! Uh, but like we've reached the end of that. Like they can't. I do. I do see it changing. I do see like you know what? Let's start putting on things that like distinguish us in a different way. Let's put on uniforms. Let's all wear collarless shirts, whatever it is. Like, and that's only gonna yeah. Back to penguin suits. But even the uniforms, the the aprons. And how now it's got color. There used to never be any color. Mm-hmm. And now there are specific things and there are hats. And if things go more formal, that's what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. Like, because there's nothing left to explore on the casual. And that's basically, what that's yeah. where it is with culture. There's very little, th- not to say the casual is not going to go away. It's just the new entries into the casual, the affordable, not going to be so easy. Yeah. Just like 15 years ago, if you're like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open a restaurant like Le Bernadette, well, good fucking luck. <laughs> right. Right. But you're, I think you're going to start to see people shooting for the moon again. And mm-hmm. once you start to see plates get more elaborate and less out of the minimal, and less right now, what is winning on the higher end is an actual mimicking of nature. Mm-hmm. Right. No, nothing new. That's been around for fucking years. Yeah. Probably the best in class is what Noma is doing because it is so hard and they're actually creating the ingredients in a way that no one's ever done before. And that's why they're doing it. Also because it's Noma, then everyone, a lot of, a lot of people are copying Noma, <laughs> but the modern plating isn't happening. I haven't seen Kiki da Costa's plates in a long time. And he's a, a three Michelin star chef in Spain. Like when I talk about the greatest platers in the world, he's there right now. My general sense is, is some version of what uh, Passard in terms of how he plates his food, that's just as it is. In a lot of ways, Passard is the most influential chef, mm-hmm. I think. Um, and then something that is in the St. John's aesthetic. Once I start to see plates veer away from that, that's going to give me a better indication where I think we might be going. Yeah, this is interesting. I mean, can you think of other, because you mentioned like Michel Bra, who's, you know, came up with Gargaloo, and then you have like, it, fewer there's fewer and fewer dishes that are defined by their plating because that was a thing right like gargalu is more defined for most people who have not tasted it by its plating than by its taste or or, or substance or like massimo like a but like oops i dropped the lemon tart like who knows like nobody tasted that but you like know it by its plating but like fewer like fergus's food is never defined by like, oh, that's it's that one dish where he it's like no stacks the, he stacks it, it the bone marrow to the ceiling or whatever. It's just like plain. That's interesting. You don't see a lot of stuff that's like defined by its plates anymore. You're seeing it because things are a little bit more a la carte. Things are a lot more simple. That's also um, a sign of the times in terms of the size and sophistication of kitchen crews. It's a lot easier to just your fucking is. Not necessarily true because a lot of these fancy places that do all these fucking dots, that's basically plating by numbers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's smoke and mirrors. Um, so that's where I'm at and trying to figure it out in terms of the trends. So that's one of it. The second part is chefs are just asking themselves, what's next? Like, I just came to this pandemic. Do I want to still do this in five, 10 years? Mm-hmm. Do I want to be a private chef? I think people would be surprised at how many chefs of note are asking themselves, what the fuck do I do? Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone gives a fuck. <laughs> it's true. I mean, because I think we, we, we just came out of a glut, right? We were in the high times. Pre-pandemic was, uh, was just like the Roman circus of restaurants. Nobody ever thought that would disappear. So I think you're going to see a lot, of, lot more chefs call it quits soon. Mm-hmm. Not because our restaurants aren't doing well. It's just it's not a meaningful existence for them anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Is there a chance, though? I mean, let me ask you this. Devil's advocate. Is there a chance when you were 25 and you were, you know, starting Momofuku that chefs were having similar or parallel conversations who had no. been in the game for this long? No, because you didn't know. Mm-hmm. We didn't know. We just didn't know. Nobody knew. Mm-hmm. It'd be like a physicist today 15 years ago. Well, it's a lot different with the web telescope. <laughs> right. You have a more concrete understanding. So you don't have to theorize. You're not worried about it. Mm-hmm. 
you were not worried about it 15 years ago that was right right you were just present yeah but we're collecting more data you couldn't see the you couldn't see the landscape you were you were down in like the valley because stuff is moving so fast everything is moving so fast in culture not just in food and fashion and literature and music it's moving at a pace that it's really hard to decide what the trend actually is and how long it's going to last but what i do know is nothing nothing remains it's almost impossible to have a stranglehold on things so i don't know you like where plating is going you prefer it just on a personal level i mean i think a lot about the idea of a, a duck breast right Mm. And it's a lot of personal preference. I don't want to eat at a restaurant where they serve me a square duck breast. That's just like, again, to me, where who I am as a person now. I don't right. care. Explain explain what, what a square, how a square duck breast is produced. Because I don't think people actually realize what you're talking about. So it, a lot of restaurants where you serve a duck breast, they'll literally, it's not on the menu, if it's a tasting menu or not. I can accept like slices. <laughs> Uh-huh. Shingled slices. Yep. But when you take a duck breast and you basically take two chunks out of it, two rectangular, you know, ruler sized chunks out of it, and you square it off so it's a perfect square, very in vogue for many years. Mm-hmm. Now I'm personally like, eh, no. I want just give me the give me the shit you cut off. Right. That you're it's going to go into the fa- not even the family meal bin. Right. I don't understand that mm-hmm. anymore. To me, that's not relevant in 2022. Sure. Why would you do that? In that way, naturalism is in vogue, and that's also why St. John's plating, you would never imagine a square duck breast ever happen at St. John's. Mm-hmm. In fact, their menu is more like, it's not our responsibility if you bite on some pellets because our game birds were just shot, right? Right. Um, and we're going to serve it to you as natural as possible on the cage or whatever. Mm-hmm. So that to me is where. If I start to see that shit again, I was like, all right, we're, we're shifting towards currently. I think we're in the, I'm just slicing some duck breast, not everywhere. And let me make one caveat. There are some chefs that can do that. They've earned the right to serve duck breast. however the fuck they want to? <laughs> sure. But if you have to ask yourself, have I earned that right? <laughs> that means you're out. Am I who he's talking about? No, you're not. If you're you asking if I'm, the, if I'm the chef he's talking about, you're not. And, and that's where I, I'm looking at these things and being like, okay, where, where, we, where are we headed? Right. And if we're headed back to this geometric stuff, I don't think so. But then again, if you look at younger kids today, 90s culture is fucking huge. The NBA is going back to the 90s uniforms. The, the ugliest uniforms. fucking uniforms <laughs> of all time. Yeah. And now they're in vogue because people want 90s stuff. Yeah. So- in some regard, I'm looking at that being like, could we go back to confetti and huge plates and tall? And the answer is 100% yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does that do for someone like me? I don't know. Mm-hmm. What kind of restaurants I want to eat at? What kind of re- I, I, The whole thing is, I don't know anything anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm reserving my judgment to not have a judgment on anything because I don't know what the fuck is going to happen. It's a terrifying and exciting time. Do you think the little tuft of microgreens is coming back ever? Well, mind you, not, microgreens huge thing in the nineties. Yeah, I feel like I've seen I've seen some microgreens creeping back out of these plates. This little tuft of micro cilantro floated on top of my food like a little. It never really died. It never went away. Microgreens, <laughs> the the cockroach of the food world. <laughs> Just when you think you've got them, they're back. And I think because all of these changes of not being able to predict the trends and the relevance of what of people's foods. Mm-hmm. A lot of chefs are just figuring out, like, what it is, what, what, you know. Is it all driven? I mean, uh, so nobody wants to be poison. Right, nobody wants to be poison. But is it? How much is it driven by consumer desire? Is it like? Is is this all driven because like are are, are the cycles happen because diners are like, oh, I'm so tired of seeing just like a simple piece of food yeah, on a plate. Social media changed a lot of that. Yeah, but I also think that the era of a celebrity chef is being replaced by actual celebrity. Hmm. And I'm using the word celebrity chef not because I like to, it's just easier for everyone to understand. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing that. You have Gwyneth Paltrow, you have all these Hollywood people, everybody, you know, Selena Gomez is, even I was looking at David Beckham and, and Posh Spice's son is making food mm-hmm. 
I mean, he cares. He's really into it. You know, initially I wanted to be like scoff and I went down the rabbit hole. I'm like, okay, he cares, Mm -hmm. you know? So this is a whole new ball game. So you're getting people that this, this world of food, no one gave a shit about. Now people care and you're not really a person of note in culture unless you have a stance on food. Right. Right. Well, so this is a lot like we talked about like boy bands are reaction to grunge, right? So you're like the, in the knock against, if you were like a, uh, a indie alt rock fan, you were just like so anti boy band, but then there's always like a Justin Timberlake, like a diamond in the rough, where you're like, oh, you're just like a boy band. And then it turns out like, oh, you know what you're doing. So like that's maybe where things will have, and like that has faded. Like the I mean, the BTS aside, it's like all those boy bands broke up, and then like the cream rose to the top still though. Joey Fatone, <laughs> Joey Fatone, man, the guy. Excuse me, the cream didn't rise to the top. Joey <laughs> Fatone didn't make it to the top. Never mind. We we lost a good one. Um, we lost a real one. Did he die? No, just I mean, only in, in the public <laughs> consciousness. <laughs> Sorry, Joey Fatone. Um. So yeah, I mean, to me, I'm just taking in a lot of the things that are happening and what I see. And I like, again, I could clearly be wrong on a lot of these things, but for me, it's more about you know helping navigate where things are going for the people that I care about. And I definitely been more too as a trend. It's more in the closer to a dozen having these conversations of from extremely established chefs of note to people that are, you know, Mm -hmm. working at a really good restaurant. Mm -hmm. I think it's okay. If you're listening and you're wondering, Hey, I'm having concern that I'm having these thoughts. I just want you to know it's okay. There's a lot of shit that's happened and nobody was prepared for it. And the job that you train to love with everything in your heart may not be the same job anymore. That's not your fault, man. Mm-hmm. In some way, again, I very similar to Inside Lewin Davis, which is a movie that is extremely underrated. I suggest everybody watch it again by the Coen brothers. It's not a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because basically, it ushers in Bob Dylan, who kills everything. Right. But also is a story of most people don't have a happy ending, but that doesn't mean that you can't like be happy. Right. Happy ending is different from being happy. Right. Being content. I'm only saying this because this is really becoming an issue now to question your career. Right. Or I mean, like, do you do anything? Right. Like, I mean, like some, like, I guess like some of the conversations you're having are people who are like, ah, fuck, I don't want to change. I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't, I want to do it the hard way because I want to do it the hard way. I don't know anyone that's saying that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people are asking, should I be a private chef? Should I work for this company? You know, I think it's okay. Catering, you name it. There's a tremendous amount of knowledge in people's heads between their ears. And I don't think anybody should undervalue that. And it's a little bit like being a, um, just because you're a chef doesn't mean that you're not able to do anything else. Hmm. You have had a master class doctorate in how to make decisions. We talked about the last podcast. You know a lot more than you give yourself credit for. So it's like, I would say studying philosophy of religion is a wonderful thing to study because it teaches you how to fucking think. You know, I think being a chef has taught people how to actually be more well-rounded than they give themselves credit for. So I think with that knowledge, you could do something in food or something not, or you can stay in it. Again, part of the conversation I've had with people is what you can do is make your restaurant more profitable. What their concern is, well, can't, I can't do that. I'm going to piss off my audience. My, some of my cooks might get really upset. Who fucking cares? Mm-hmm. If it means that you can work less and be happier, that's the important thing. And that's where I think the media is getting their, the, the, the hypocrisy is actually too much. Yeah. And it goes back even like a 10 years ago when a lot of the chefs were doing fast food concept. And they're like, you can't do that. What do you mean? I can't open up a restaurant concept that I can scale, make money and work less hours. You want me to only do fine dining? And I think that there's this prevailing thought now that if you don't want to do this or if you change your career or if you're questioning something, then, you know. Yeah, this was like, this reminds me of Cho's talk at Matt all those years ago when we invited him out when he was like, you dictate the value of the work. You just tell them how much you want for it. And then it's up to them to decide if right. they're with you. But like, don't don't go by what you think other people value your work at. This is why I want people that are thinking about this to use this as an opportunity to be the most creative you've ever fucking been. 
that thing that you've been thinking about, that thing that you're so scared about, this is the time to like unleash it because these are the moments. This is the time to do something that you never thought was possible. I think the worst thing is to say, I can't do it because they need it, or I can't do it because this is how I've done it, or I can't do it because of integrity. I can't do it because the whole idea of I can't do something is editing in your head without getting any data. It's like, you can, whatever ideal you have, you can find a way to slowly introduce it and see if it works or doesn't work. Get some results, get some data, hypothesize it, test your hypothesis, test your fucking hypothesis. That's what I've been telling everybody. Hey, that fucking sounds stupid, but maybe it's not stupid. Mm. I think that, that the big takeaway really is like, you know, you're assessing the landscape and what's, what's occurring to me right now is like, if nothing else, we are definitely in a transitional period. Like things are changing right now. We are not in the middle of like strong currents all pushing in one direction. Like we are, if nothing else, at a time when like, who knows what's going to come next. You're even saying who knows what's going to come next. These are the moments where you can try something else out, right? And I always use music as an example of trends, right? For example, maybe the past 20 years was more akin to disco. Everybody was doing disco from the Rolling Stones to the Grateful Dead. It just permeated every facet of how, can, how you will listen to music for the mm-hmm. most part. Now, no, right? It's evolved and you can still do disco. The closest disco I could think of is maybe like the last Arcade Fire album or two albums ago. And what mm-hmm. James does at LCD, where it's more about, you know, certain elements of it and it evolves and it changed. So I, I think it's a, it's an opportunity to see exactly what it is. So it may not it may not be what you think it is. You could do what you're doing in another capacity. What it is, I don't know. But this is th- these are exciting times because you can try anything you fucking want to, really. Because no, if nobody fucking knows, you know what I mean? Like that's the one difference between pre- previous cycles is you had these gatekeepers that tells you this is what it is. Nobody knows. I can tell you right now, whoever tells you is a gatekeeper and they know what the fucking is going to come down the you should never trust anybody now if they tell you, like, I, I know that this is happening. This is going to be good. They're straight fucking lying, and they're trying to steal your fucking money. <laughs> Give us five stars. How do you rate this? Join us on our Discord channel, MajorDemoMedia.com. There's a link that'll take you there. And um, if you're looking for all things Momofuku, visit us at shop.momofuku.com. <laughs>